passage this morning, or the uh, title this morning for the text, is called The Path of Reconciliation. I'm going to warn you at the front end that we have a lot of ground to cover, but I believe these two chapters must go together because they flow from one to the other, and the message is contained in the two of them. So when we come to this point in Joseph's story, we find that Joseph has been forced, has forced his brothers to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, the one whom he shares both the father and mother with, to Egypt. Without Benjamin, he would not see them. They would not be able to get more grain to bring back home because the whole world is in a famine. And because of God's provision through Joseph's dreams, they were able to store up grain in Egypt for seven years of plenty. And now the years of famine are hitting them. And now Joseph has been testing his brothers, and he will see how they respond to an endangered brother. Now, their first response had not been stellar. When, when Joseph had locked up Simeon in an Egyptian prison waiting for them to come back to get him, the brothers abandoned Simeon to go back home and carry all of their grain, and, and, and they left him there until the last possible moment when they had grown uh, hungry and they had no longer had grain at home. They waited until their food was exhausted, until they went back to Egypt to fetch their brother who they left in prison. Joseph was not satisfied with how the brothers were treating their, their kin, and so he thought to himself he needed to continue to test them. And, and, and my question for you this morning is, how do you navigate reconciliation? It seems like an impossible goal, something so far away and like a, in the murky distance. How could you possibly get there? You, you feel like you should be going that direction, but how can we get there? These two chapters give us a path of reconciliation, like a road we must walk, if we have either wronged people or people have wronged us. So how do we be reconciled? How should we find reconciliation? Let's go to God in prayer. Ask him to give us light from his spirit as we look at his word. Father, we ask you today to give us what we need from this passage. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. And we thank you for this wonderful story that teaches us a path toward reconciliation. And we ask that there are those here this morning who have bitter hearts towards relatives, loved ones, friends, or even people they do not know, Father, that you would tend, make their hearts tender this morning, that they would pursue reconciliation to your honor, praise, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is the path of reconciliation? How can we get there? The first step along the way towards reconciliation is that we must respond correctly to God's testing. Joseph has been testing how they would respond to an endangered brother. We'll notice in verses 1 through 13 that this was their faithfulness tested as they were brought to the end of their rope. Notice Joseph's commands he gives to his steward. He commanded the steward of the house, saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he, the steward, did according to the word that Joseph has spoken. Joseph devises a plan by which he would test these brothers. They brought Benjamin with them, and, and he wanted to, to, to help see what their attitude was towards Benjamin. So he returns their money in the sacks. This is the second time he has done this. And he takes what he calls a divination cup, a, a special cup that was in use among the Egyptian elite of which Joseph was one. And it probably was on the dinner table while they ate dinner together in the previous chapter. They ate this feast together and probably featured prominently there was this divination cup. And, and so Joseph takes this cup, he gives it to the steward, he says, I want you to place this in Benjamin's sack of goods. This was Joseph's 
personal cup. It would have been his identifying marker. No doubt the steward knows something's going on here. What in the world are you up to, Joseph? He might be thinking to himself. Remember, Joseph and Benjamin were only two sons of the same mother, Rachel, and here it's also possible that Joseph is doing this to protect Benjamin. He doesn't know how his brothers are going to treat Benjamin, and the men leave Egypt. They do not get very far. Verse 3, as soon as the morning dawned, this is after their feasting the night before, the men were sent away. We get the idea here that they are hurried out the door, that they are pushed out. They and their donkeys, and when they had gone out of the city, they were not yet far off. Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. Joseph's plan involves his steward going out of the city, tracking down his brothers and rebuking them and accusing them of returning evil for good. He had just given them meals. He had just given them hospitality. He had shown favor to them, and his accusation was that he did all this good. Why would they return evil for good? Now, if you think about what had gone on in Joseph's life, his brothers had done the exact same thing to him in that they had returned evil for his good. They had sold him into slavery, and now he is having a trick or a ploy to see how they respond to being mistreated and accused of wrongdoing. Verse 6, so he overtook them, and he spoke to them the same words, and the brothers are astonished. They can't believe what they're being accused of. They said to him, verse 7, why does my Lord say these things? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. How could we uh, steal a cup? Of course we did not do this. And then verse 8, they, they, they say, look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal the silver and gold from your Lord's house? And with whomever your servant it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. He says, remember that when we came back the second time, we brought the money that was returned to us. We, we were ready to pay double. We were ready to, to clear the deck. How could you accuse us of doing something like stealing this? How could we possibly steal anything? And they make a bold assertion. They say, if you find the cup in any of these bags, the man whose cup or whose bag it is shall be killed, and all the rest of us will become your slaves. Now, a fascinating thing happens in the next phrase because the steward, who knows what is about to happen, either pretends to mishear the, uh, what's being said or he purposefully adjusts the terms of the agreement when he repeats the words back to them. Because read in verse 10, and he said, Now also let it be according to your words. And here's his statement. He who, with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Rather than the one who finds the cup in his sack being killed, here only the guilty party will be made a slave and the rest would be free. See what Joseph is setting up. He is making it easy for the brothers to abandon Benjamin to Egypt. He is making it easy for the brothers to once again abandon a brother to prison and to slavery. He is testing to see if they've changed at all. Verse 11, each man speedily, I think this is a sign of their honesty or their boldness, he speedily let down his sack to the ground from their animals there, and each opened his sack, and he searched, and he began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup 
was found in Benjamin's sack. One by one, the steward goes and he examines the men's sacks of grain, and he goes from one to the other. Now, there's a fascinating detail that's missing from this story. What did they not notice? The money in the sacks. I think it's fascinating at this point. I, I believe personally that they were so accustomed to the money being returned, they assumed that the money being returned, no big deal. This has happened before. God has blessed us again with money in our sacks. But what they're looking for is that cup. And when they come to Benjamin's sack, they open it up, and there inside the sack is the cup in verse 13. How did they respond to this? Did they, were they excited to get rid of this brat young brother of theirs and, and kick him to the curb and send him to Egypt? It says, no, they tore their clothes and then look how they responded. Each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. They opened up their belongings. They were not, they, they, they willingly shared, they willingly uh, were examined. And when they came to Benjamin, their response was not joy to rid themselves of their brother, but grief and anguish. And they did not leave Benjamin in Egypt. They, they go immediately back to the city. Judah had promised his father Judah had promised his father he would not allow anything to happen to Benjamin, and now this is happening. Previously, they had allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery, and now they had another opportunity to rid themselves of a brother, but they would not leave him. They'd go back to the city. Their faithfulness was tested. And then secondly, we see their truthfulness tested in verse 14. This is some signs of repentance coming out from Joseph's brothers because repentance and truthfulness are connected. When you are repentant, you will be truthful, fully truthful. And we see Judah here in verse 14 who stops making excuses. It says Judah and his brothers come to Joseph's house and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground and Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? He speaks directly to Joseph and he addresses their sin. Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, your, my Lord's slaves, both we and also he with whom the cup is found. He says, I will make no excuses. We had it. God has found our iniquity. And I think he's thinking of another iniquity. That is the iniquity that has dominated his life and his thinking to this point. The iniquity of selling his brother into slavery, and Joseph gives him yet another opportunity to abandon Benjamin with him. Look at verse uh, 17. Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. As for all of you, go up in peace to your father. But then notice that Judah speaks the truth. And in doing so, he demonstrates concern for his father, for his father's health, for his brother and his brother's health. And none of these things were present when they sold Joseph into slavery. None of these things were present when they took Joseph's cloak and they made like he had died in the wilderness. They didn't care how it impacted their father. They didn't care how it impacted their brother. They were completely uh, selfish at that point. But notice the change in Joseph's, Joseph's personality. Notice the change in Joseph's temperament and in his thinking as he comes to verse 18 here as he speaks the truth. And Judah came near to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a brother or father? We said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child in his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. 
Then you said to your servant, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes, you shall not see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. Verse 26. But we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us. Then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. And if you take this one from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Verse 30, Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servant will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad. To the five fathers, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord. Let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. In this long speech, Judah reveals the following, that he has put his own life on the line for Benjamin. I am surety for my brother, and if he does not come back, my father will die, and I cannot bear that. Since he is surety, I will stay and send him in my place. Number two, he shows that he cares about his father's health. He says, if I go back without him, my father will die, and I cannot stand to let my father die in sorrow. And three, he says, I, Judah, would rather die than see my father suffer more than what he has suffered. These are signs of a repentant heart. He is faithful, and he is truthful. Now, we know Judah has not always been so faithful and truthful. If you follow the story of Joseph so far, he has been a rascal all the way to this point. But yet God has worked a work in Judah's heart, and God has shown faithfulness and truthfulness, and they passed the test. Now, I want you, as we move forward, now we're going to shift perspective from the one who committed the sin to the one who is the victim of the sin. Because what we have next is Joseph's side of this story. In chapter 45, we need to recognize, not only respond correctly to God's testing, but recognize God's purposes in your suffering because we see at the beginning of this story or at the beginning of this chapter that reconciliation requires disclosure. In verse 1, Joseph could not restrain or control himself before those who stood by. And he cried out, make everyone go out from me speaking to the Egyptians, and no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Picture the story, picture the scene where Joseph sends all the Egyptians out of the room, and he's crying and wailing, and he's emotional, and there stand his brothers who are oblivious to what is happening. They're confused. Why is this man acting this way? What have we done? What has he done? Is he going to kill us? Is he going to execute us one by one? What is happening before us right now? In verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, and I believe for the very first time he speaks to them in Hebrew. And he says, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? Does my father still live? Look at the rest of that verse. His brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at 
his presence. Joseph finally reveals who they have been dealing with this whole time. And they are understandably dismayed, distraught. This word means that they are out of breath, that they are senseless, and they've lost their senses. Essentially, they stop breathing. They were so shocked that they could not think straight. They're listening to an Egyptian man speak Hebrew. This Egyptian man before them who they have been dealing with all of a sudden is telling them that he is their brother whom they gave away years ago, selling into slavery, and now he is speaking to them. And how will he respond? How will he respond? Verse 4, he then invites them in. Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. What do we know about Egyptians and Hebrews? The Egyptians will not be near the Hebrews. It's an abomination for even an Egyptian to eat with a Hebrew. And an Egyptian Joseph tells his brothers to come close. Reconciliation requires disclosure. It requires openness. And he said to them, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Reconciliation requires truth. It requires disclosure. It requires revelation. You cannot have a relationship without openness between the parties involved. Joseph could not have had reconciliation had he pretended to continue to be that Egyptian man. He had to take the mask off and show who he was, and his brothers had to face him for who he was. There are no more deception, no more holding back, no more partial truths. All of those things stand in the way of reconciliation. There must be disclosure. Reconciliation also requires adopting God's perspective. Look at how Joseph talks in verse 5. But before we do so, I want you to imagine yourself in his situation. All of the time that you have been in prison, all the time you've been a slave, been wrongfully accused, all the suffering you have gone through, what would you have been thinking to say to your brothers when you see him for the first time? Think about how you would have been stewing on those words, what you would have said, what you would have imagined in your mind when you get to see your brothers for the first time after what they have done, how many years they have wasted of your life. And then I want you to imagine the anger, resentment, choice words, and hatred for those who have put us through so much and how God's perspective eliminates all that. Because what Joseph says is the opposite of what most of us would have said in that scenario. Verse 5. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity to, for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, the lord of his house and ruler through all the land of Egypt. He acknowledges that they sold him. What they did was wrong, but he says, God has worked through your failures. You sold me into Egypt, but don't be angry with yourself. Don't play the what if game. What if this happened? What if this happened? What if we'd done this instead? He says, God has sent me here to do something big, to preserve life. God's plans are bigger than our failures. We cannot outfail God. God's goodness is over our failures. If we sin, yes, it's an abomination. Yes, we must confess. But God can take even the evil that we do, and he can work it for good. This is the, the greatness of our God that can take our, our wicked behaviors, and God can turn that towards 
good. In the end, he says, it's not you who sent me here. God was at work the whole time. God is the one who's given favor to Joseph. God is the one who has made him like a father. God has done amazing things. And this is one of the hard things to do as a victim is to recognize God's purposes in your suffering. When you are a victim, you must recognize that God is at work in your suffering in ways that you can never imagine, in ways that are far beyond your comprehension. And Joseph here recognizes that reconciliation requires that we adopt God's perspective. Joseph adopts God's perspective. And part of recognizing God's purposes is releasing your desire for retribution. He says in verse 9, he begins to, uh, before we turn there, I, you know, I think about retribution. I think about um, the temptations we have. Have you ever met somebody who said, I don't get mad, I get even? Um, revenge is a dish best served cold. People who, who love, in fact, we were just joking, there's famous movies that are based on, on, on revenge, and revenge becomes the main plot line, and, and everyone gets fascinated with, can I just take revenge for those who have killed my relatives, right? Revenge is a serious problem among people today, but if you are going to reconcile with those who've offended you, or you're going to reconcile with someone you offended, you must release your desire for retribution. How do you do that? Well, first, you love those who hated you. Verse 9, hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of Egypt. God is the one. With all this power, what will he do? What will Joseph do? He shows love. He says, come down to me. Do not wait. Do not tarry. You shall dwell, verse 10, in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all you have come to poverty. There are still five more years. He wants to be near them. He wants to provide for them. They hated him but he shows love to them. Verse 12, Behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see it is my mouth that speaks to you, so you shall tell my father of all the glory in Egypt, all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck, and he wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. Joseph went one by one to those brothers who had sold him, thrown him into a pit, and eaten lunch after they did that, and then sold him to a caravan of traders going by. Joseph had done, he went to every brother who offended him and who had hated him, and he kissed them and loved them. This is giving up desire for retribution. This is very hard. Giving up a desire for retribution is a willingness to, to relieve yourself of that responsibility and give it to the hands of God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven and he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You must love those who have hated you. And I can't begin to tell you that I think, I, I do not think this is easy. It is difficult. It is extremely difficult. But we are called to love those who hated us, if we're going to be reconciled. And secondly, we're called to give to those who've taken from you. 
Now the report of it was heard from Pharaoh's house, saying Joseph's brothers had come, and it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. Verse 17, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan, bring your father, your household, come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. If you go back up to verse 11, he says similarly, I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. Go back to verse 19. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts, wagons out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Do not be concerned about your goods. For the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours. Notice Joseph's generosity. Think of all the things they had taken from him. They had taken his freedom. They had taken his clothing. They had taken everything that he had, his identity. They had stripped him of all of that and thrown him into a pit and sold him. And now Joseph will turn to them and give them the fat of the land. They don't need to be concerned about anything because Joseph gives them everything. Carts. They had so much stuff, they had to have wagons carry it home. Now, some of you are like, I know that feeling. My wife goes shopping every week. We need to get a bigger car with a wagon on the back to drag the stuff home. You know, she goes yard sale shopping and comes back with a big, okay, that is kind of the idea here is like we need to get bigger carts. We, we got so much stuff to take home. We, we, earlier, they were just carrying things on their donkeys. They had grain, that's all they had. But Joseph wants to give them abundantly. He wants to bless them, and he says, you're going to need more than that. You're going to need carts full of stuff to go home and for your children. Who had brought them to Egypt? What had brought them to Egypt? Well, their food. They, had, they, they were hungry. They were out of food. And then now, look, they were concerned about living. They would never have to worry about food or living again. Verse 21, the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them the carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for their journey. And you know, remember how when they sold Joseph, what they did? They took off his garment, and they threw him in the pit, and guess what Joseph gives to them? He gave to them, to each man, changes of garments. And to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments, and he sent to his father these things. Ten donkeys loaded with the goods of Egypt, ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. He sent his brothers away, and they departed, and he said to them, See, you do not become troubled along the way. Joseph is an excellent example to us today of someone who loved those who hated him and gave those who took from him. And God calls us, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath. As it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. A lot of us have gone through very evil things. We have experienced the evil of this world. We have had people do things to us that could only be defined as evil, and our, our normal reaction would be to get back at them, to fight fire with fire, to, to lash out with, with anger. But God says, you don't do that. As Christians, you respond with good. And God says this is a reflection of what is in our heart. Reflection of what he has done in our heart, I should say. He had, by, by responding with good, by, by loving those who hate us, by giving to those who take from us, we are showing God's forgiveness in our life. We are reconciling with our brother. The first point deal with the brother's response. The last two points have dealt with Joseph's response, and reconciliation takes both sides. And now we're going to look again 
at Joseph's brothers, as we will see, that they had to repent to those you have wronged. You should notice that the brothers have spoken the truth, but they have spoken the truth to someone they didn't realize they had sinned against. Up to this point, you know, it's one thing to speak the truth about your sin to someone who is disconnected from your sin. It's another thing entirely to go to the person you offended and ask them to forgive you for the sin you committed against them. And so Joseph's brothers have one more obstacle in their path is that they had to come clean, they had to report, and then they had to repent of a sin that they had committed against their father. We see in verse 25, he says, they went out of Egypt, came to the land of Canaan to, to their father. And I can't imagine that the dread that filled them as they walked towards Canaan and they finally stood before their father, verse 26, and they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. Now, how did Jacob respond to this? It says, and Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. While the brothers lost their breath, Jacob froze, and it's like he became a statue. It's, it's like he could not process what they were telling him. His whole life, he had thought that his son was dead in a wilderness, torn apart by some wild beast, and now he hears not only is he alive, he is a governor over the land of Egypt. This moment had defined his life so much and it turns out his life was different than what he had thought. But reconciliation does something remarkable. Verse 27. And when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when they saw the carts that Joseph had sent to carry him, look at what happened to Jacob. The spirit of Jacob, their father, what does your translation say? Revived. It was like he was dead. His heart stopped. Now, I don't think he had a heart attack. I think that's a figure of speech to say that he completely froze in place. And when they spoke to him, it's like he thawed and came to life. That the truth penetrated and reconciliation to something amazing. This is the language of resurrection. In verse 28, he says, Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go see him before I die. The son whom he assumed was dead is alive. And it's almost like he dies and comes back to life. He sees and he hears what they tell him. He understands that his long-lost son is not long-lost anymore. And it thrills him that he will be joined again to his son, that he will see his son. The one he thought was dead is alive, and reconciliation brings life. Sin brings death. Reconciliation brings life out of death. We see this clearly. It's God's desire that we live reconciled lives. If you have broken relationships and unreconciled relationships, unreconciled relationships always bring death and dismay. Unreconciliation from God brings the ultimate death and the ultimate dismay because being separated from God means an eternal separation from God, an eternal death in a place called hell. And when you reject God and you are not reconciled to him, you face that death yourself. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord that we have someone who already has reconciled us to the Father and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation and I am standing here calling you on behalf of God be reconciled to Christ Amen. because there's death and there's life 
Unreconciled people, it's death. Those who are reconciled, there is life. What an amazing passage that teaches us that with reconciliation, it brings life out of death. Those of you who live in unreconciled relationships for a long time, whose bitterness has eaten away at your heart, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know the kind of effect it has on your body, the kind of effect it has on your mind when you are unreconciled. So today I'm challenging you to go and get right with that person if they are still alive. Every time there's a funeral, I challenge people. I'll start back. One time I, had, I did a funeral. And someone came up to me and they said, every time you preach a funeral, you need to challenge people to get reconciled because I was unreconciled with that person and I'll regret it the rest of my life that I didn't do it. I didn't get right with them while they were still alive. And so I have it in my notes. Every single funeral I preach since that point, some of you know because you've been to these funerals, I say something along the lines of, if you have unreconciled relationships with people in your life, get them right now. Don't live through life with unreconciled relationships. It's not worth it. You do not know the last time you will see that person. You do not know when you will see them again. And if you don't know where they are, pray God will bring them along your way. Life is too short to live an unreconciled life with people, and life is way too short to live an unreconciled relationship with God. If you are unreconciled with God, if you have sinned against him, and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you've never delivered your guilt to him, if he has not taken your guilt on his shoulders, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all your sins, past, present, and future. And by accepting that gift of salvation, by faith alone, in Christ alone, and releasing the responsibility to work your way to heaven, you, you can't possibly do that. There's not enough righteousness in the world for you to make your way to heaven, you unrighteous person. You must come to Christ, who has freely given you the gift of his righteousness, and all that you must do is believe. To say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in your gift of salvation and what you provided for me on the cross. Friends, this story gives us a picture of the path of reconciliation. Will you walk that path? Some of you have been the person who has caused harm in other people's lives, and you look at your life, and you see the train wreck after train wreck in your history, and it fills you with guilt and so much despair that you just don't want to think about it. So you've ignored it, and my challenge to you today is to come clean with God about these things and pray that God would put you in the place where you can ask forgiveness, and you can adopt God's perspective, and you can repent to those you have wronged, and you can get right. Some of you are on the other side, and you look at your life, and you see person after person after person who has harmed you, and it hurts. And there's a temptation to think, woe is me, I must be cursed, I'll never make it. If I ever get them, I will give them what they deserve. Commit now that when you see that person, you will hug them, love them, give to them. Love those who hate you. Pray for those who despisefully use you. Are you willing to do the hard things to make your relationships with others what they ought to be? All of us find ourselves in different places. My challenge to you today is that you get right. Life is too short for you to be living your life with scattered trouble everywhere. Make a list. I, I, in fact, we... I preached at a, um, my wife and I were at a couples conference this past week. I had the opportunity of 
uh, preaching for a couple days at a couples conference. And one of the assignments we gave everybody was there, and I give it to many of you have received this assignment. There's a piece of paper, and it's very simple. It's, and you can make one of these pieces of paper, uh, a piece of legal paper. I draw a line down the middle, and on one side I say, "People I have sinned against, so I need to forget. Who I need, who need to, I need to forgive. Oh no, people I've sinned against, so I need to ask forgiveness. And then people who've sinned against me, I need to forgive. Those who I've sinned against, those who've sinned against me. And I, I give that paper to people, and I say, I want you to, to clear the deck. I want you to write on that piece of paper who are the people you've sinned against. You need to pursue and ask forgiveness." And who are the people who sinned against you you need to forgive? Sometimes it's a long list. Sometimes people have had that list and they say, back in 1981, this person did this. And I have never been the same. And I hate them for it. Friends, Jesus has experienced so much pain and so much suffering for you. Who are we to withhold forgiveness from anyone who has harmed us. He has forgiven us. We owe it to them to be forgiving. Would we be reconciled? If you're not saved, if you need to get reconciled with God, today's the day of salvation. Don't wait another day. I challenge you today to come to him. If today is your day of reconciliation with a friend, maybe you need to find someone in the hallway as you're on your way out. I need to say, I need to talk to you. I need to ask your forgiveness. Maybe they're here. Maybe you need to get on your phone when you get in the parking lot and you need to call somebody. Commit now. As you leave, commit that God will give you the strength to reconcile with the people you need to get right with. Father, we ask today that we come before you, that you would work in our hearts to show us reconciliation as it ought to be. Lord, may we come just as we are. We don't have all the answers. But your word tells us that we ought to be reconciled. We know sin brings death. Sin brings destruction. Sin brings all kinds of problems. And for those who've been sinned against and are still holding back that forgiveness, Lord, make their hearts tender. May they recognize that before you they are forgiven. Therefore, we ought to forgive quiet of this moment, Lord, I pray that you would help our hearts to respond as we ought. And that we would make commitments today to follow you, to be reconciled to those around us. We would not withhold forgiveness from anyone. And Lord, for those of us who have been a wrecking ball in our life, have gone around and caused all kinds of trouble, may you humble us to come before you and say, Lord, I bow my knee Speak the truth. I own it. I'm willing to take the consequences, but I want to be reconciled. Lord Jesus, thank you for the quiet of this moment, and as we deal with you, and as we sing this song, may we be humble people. In Jesus' name, amen.